0: The topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome integrative dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu.
1: Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 295, Diet versus Exercise. This is often going to be discussed as the kind of 80-20 rule, but is that ratio even true? Um, So all too often, we really see clients either going too hard on exercise and kind of letting diet fall by the wayside or doing the whole like calories in, calories out thing. Yep. Um, Or they're overeating because their, you know, macro tracking app tells them they burned 500 calories in their yoga class. They Um, earned it. (laughs) Yeah, they earned it. They earned those extra calories. Um, And so in today's episode, we're really going to unpack the metabolic set point Um, true influence of diet versus exercise on body fat loss and how to find the right balance.
2: Yes, I am excited for today's episode. I think it's going to have a lot of gems and aha moments and really teach y'all to understand that the choices you make with your fork are likely substantially more powerful on your waistline than the white knuckling that's going on in the gym. Yes.
1: Absolutely.
2: Um, before we get into
1: all that and kind of in conjunction with today's episode, um, we still have a promo going on for you podcast listeners on both our 12 week food medicine keto program and our 12 week keto meal plans.
2: Yes. So I'm sure after today's episode, you will all be running over to allymillerrd.com, where you can take advantage of saving $50 off our 12 week food as medicine ketosis program. So this program is $149, but when you use the $50 off, you're going to be able to get it for just $99. And this is six 90 minute classes that are pre recorded that Becky and I taught. It's also going to include customized interactive worksheets so that you get to build your own protocol to get you into nutritional ketosis. We have various adaptations for breastfeeding and for different stages of your weight loss journey, or maybe you're doing the ketogenic diet for neurogenesis and you want to actually gain weight following an autoimmune flare or something like that. We have three different stages of uh, a weight loss fast track, a steady sustain approach, as well as a heal maintain and gain approach so getting fat adapted does not mean that you're on a one track program we're going to give you the tools to be able to customize this for your own body and your own needs you're also going to get 20-plus handouts and materials. We, throughout the classes, are going to be sharing supplement and lab recommendations. You get 2 ebooks, The Eat Fat Gets Skinny, which is a bunch of recipes, as well as Ketogenic Kickstart, which talks about the science and strategy of nutritional ketosis. And this 12-week program can be watched over and over. You can spread it out, watch it every quarter if you want. You get it for the lifetime of the website, um, but we do suggest digging into a class at about in every other. Their week pace, which would carry you over a window of time to really ensure that you're getting sustained outcomes. Um, and so again, you'd be watching this over a 12-week period, all six classes. Um, and participants have seen anything from accelerated weight loss and body composition improvement to improved insulin sensitivity, getting off of diabetic drugs, improved cholesterol and triglyceride levels, balanced hormones, enhanced cognitive function, improved sleep Sleep. Better balanced gut bacteria and clear skin, decreased sugar cravings, overall food empowerment, and so much more. So again, you can use the code KetoFam50. You're gonna save $50 off this program, making it just $99. And going over to grab that at AllieMillerRD.com.
1: And then the meal plans that I mentioned are a separate kind of newer entity. Obviously, Eat Fat, Get Skinny has quite a few recipes. Um, however, the meal plans are our newest offering uh, that we just started in January of this year. Um, and it essentially makes it like a no-brainer approach, right? You get every week a meal matrix, so telling you how to kind of space out your meals and and you know what to have for each meal. Um, we even include your intermittent fasting and fasting beverages in there, um, but it just makes it so simple. There's a grocery list that goes with every single week uh, that we put together, you know, painstakingly, so you know exactly what you need to have on hand in the pantry, what you need to go out and purchase. Um, And we've made it so that the breakfasts and lunches are mostly for kind of a single serving, um, assuming that you're mostly taking care of yourself during that part of the day. And then the dinners are um, for a family of four. So you can kind of adjust that, you know, based on needs and and leftovers and whatnot. Uh, But we've gotten such great feedback of like, oh, this is exactly what I needed to actually Get into ketosis and stop stressing about my macros. Stop like counting these numbers because we already did it for you, right? Just follow
2: the plan. Yes, just follow the plan. And we've gotten such great feedback on the recipes themselves, how they've become household favorites and are being made and brought to parties and gatherings. Uh, we're really proud of the product. So definitely that's another great savings with Keto Fam 10. You can save $10 off the meal plans, which are retailed at $45. Yes. So for just $35, you will get 12 weeks. You get it all compressed as basically a very comprehensive cookbook, but also you will be in an email uh, delivery system where once a week you'll get... A grocery list, your weekly challenge, your recipe pack, and um, all the elements you need each week, kind of layering through that 12 weeks to keep you motivated and on track. Yes. So at that
1: sale price of $35, it's, you know, less than $3
2: a week. I mean... No excuses. Less than a boring (laughs) cup of coffee, not even a fancy one. Not
1: even a fancy one anymore, nope. Awesome. Um, All right, and last but not least, um, before we jump into today's topic, let's just have a word from our sponsor for this episode, KetoCon.
2: All things keto today. Yes. So uh, we are so excited to share that we will be at KetoCon Austin. That runs July 8th through the 10th this summer, coming in just a couple weeks. And this is going to be held at the Palmer Event Center in Austin, Texas. It is the largest event in the country, focused solely on the science and the stories of living a ketogenic diet and lifestyle. It is my favorite conference to be a part of. Uh, There are 50 additional speakers who are a broad breadth of individuals from medical professionals and researchers to bloggers to fitness experts to everyday people who have used the ketogenic diet to improve their health and share their stories you will leave motivated you will leave inspired you will leave with at least five different tricks that you're going to apply to your whether you're a keto noob or a keto veteran and you just need to shake things up you're definitely going to come home with some new solutions to really take your health to the next level there's also two 250 plus vendors, so you get to try all the snacks and bring home a grab bag full of fun stuff. You'll also get to meet individuals that make different technology elements like wearable devices, CGMs, different ways of testing ketones, and so much more. You can get your tickets at ketocon.org, and when you use the code NOURISHED10 at checkout, you can save 10% off a three-day general admission pass. Again, the code is nourished ten. You'll save 10% off on a three-day general admission pass. And I will be speaking on the main stage at a medical panel on Friday, i will also be hanging out after that medical panel lecture and doing a book signing so definitely come on over and hang out with me for the meet and greet you can bring any of your own books um, that i've written that i will sign put special messages in we'll take pictures do all the fun stuff you can pick my brain and then on saturday i will be on the main stage talking about ketosis and the immune connection so I know that that's going to be spicy and have mm-hmm. all sorts of important information to share. And I just can't wait to be on a big old stage with a microphone in my hand again. It's and been a minute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm super excited to see you all, meet you all. Definitely, it's worth the flight. It's worth the travel. You're going to come home with some awesome new friends and connect with some of your heroes in the keto space. Go on over to ketocon.org. Use the code NOURISHED10 at checkout.
1: Okay. Let's do it. Um, So we've heard that 80% of your body composition is determined by your diet, not how you exercise. Uh, But let's break down the basics, you know, what we do know and, and maybe what we don't know quite on this diet versus exercise debate.
2: Yes. So I think most people acknowledge that it's pretty difficult bordering on impossible to out-exercise a bad diet. Um, Now, if exercising is your full-time gig and you are a professional athlete, A, I'm hoping that you're tuning up your body with good nourishment. But yes, there are some individuals that can out-exercise a bad diet if they are literally living their life for abs and race times and performance in their exercise game. But eventually, and we see this even with retired NFL players and and professional athletes, poor health will catch up with you. Um, And so it's not that exercise doesn't have any health benefits. We'll cover, of course, some of the mechanisms of how exercise plays a role with lean body mass and maybe indirectly plays a role with metabolism. But what we do know is that the exercise is quite unhelpful overall in weight loss itself, um, and so we know that 100% of the energy that we gain comes from food, and we can actually only burn about 10 to 30% of it with physical activity each day. There's a lot more rigid of a metabolic self point or set point than we prior understood, or then people like to dumb it down, or then your treadmill likes to tell you that you're burning. (laughs) What we don't yet know is all of the interworking mechanisms of cascades of changes that occur on an exercising individual and so you know does exercise impact how much we eat based on it influencing our neurotransmitters Um, does it influence again thermogenesis or the various shifts that occur in our muscle fibers or in our types of body fat that would influence metabolism yes there's definitely extension for some of these again indirect influences but one of the big ones that is really the biggest limiting variable is the fact that, again, we can only burn about 10 to 30% of our activity from our choice or our exercise daily. Interesting. So let's talk more about that energy expenditure
1: and how it's just not as dynamic as you might think or what your fitness watch or, again, the treadmill clock and, and whatnot is telling you might not be the real deal.
2: Yes, so when we're looking at the field of anthropology and really looking at evolution of human and various cultures and activity factors, this is what really brings to light the influence of energy expenditure not being dynamic. So an anthropologist, Herman Ponster, uh, did a study where he was looking at the Hadza um, in Africa. And this is a tribe of hunters and gatherers, and they're very physically active and lean. Literally on their feet, killing animals climbing trees searching for wild honey hunting you know all of the things the classic hunter gatherer absolutely dynamic from a westernized country where sitting is the new smoking and you know many people are very low in a general activity factor whereas the Hadza are making several trips um, and they're going to be throughout the day very metabolically active now the anthropologist was actually studying respiration um, and looking at their energy output. And he had thought, again, that the Hadza would be burning substantially more energy than Westerners because their bodies are so much more active. But instead, what he found is that humans have really evolved to have very little to do with their lifestyle and their activity output, and that the Hadza's bodies were able to actually conserve or put out less energy in the tasks that someone who was less fit would put out more energy for. So they were surprised when the energy expenditure among the Hadza was literally no greater than it was for people in the U.S. and Europe. Um, Again, even with dynamic activity factors being very different.
1: Okay, so really not
2: a lot of impact from that, but. Is it their
1: diet? Is that what the difference is, we think?
2: Right. So, you know, again, it's that, you know, regardless of how much we're moving, mm-hmm. our basal metabolic rate is the majority of our caloric expenditure. And so, when we're looking at the three components that burn energy, we're looking at our basal metabolic rate, or basically the energy that's required for all of our function of survival when the body is in a rested mode. So, these are involuntary functions like our heartbeat, um, our body temperature regulation, all of that is the this basal metabolic rate. Then we have the energy that's used to break down food, um, which is quite standardized. And then we have the energy used in physical activity, which again really only leaves about a 10 to 30 percent influence where exercise is a subset about 60 to 80 percent of our total energy expenditure is this basal metabolic rate and then digesting food accounts for about a 10 percent again leaving only that 10 to 30 percent variability in physical activity
1: okay so those are kind of the three ways that we expend energy and and um how is that basal metabolic rate then
2: determined So basal metabolic rate will be dependent on the amount of lean mass of the Mm -hmm. individual and then again on the requirements of that um, involuntary function. Sure. Our survival mechanism. So you could be laying in bed all day. You're going to have the same basal metabolic rate as the same same, um, impact as if you ran a marathon. Your basal metabolic rate would not change on that given day. Makes sense.
1: Um, But if your muscle, while you laid in bed for weeks and weeks, if your muscle mass decreased, eventually that would decrease as well. We used to see that in our office we would do, you know, BIA scans, and they would give an estimation based on an individual's percent of muscle mass, how much muscle they had, or based on the pounds of of lean body mass, of what their BMR would be. Um, and we often found it to be quite accurate when we were trying to calculate their calorie needs and help individuals figure out what they needed to do to actually lose
2: weight. Well, and you just kind of hit the the nail on the head where you said again, you use the basal metabolic rate to right. equate calorie. Caloric needs, not what the treadmill is telling you. You're burning, which again is not relative. It's not relative. Yeah. It's not relevant. Um, it's, you know, a number of potential expenditure, but what we've seen in weight loss research is that, you know, after three months time, generally speaking, the body's going to recalibrate its Mm, burner output. Interesting. So that's, what's really a big component of this. You know, there was a study that a link that found that after 20 weeks, weight loss was less than expected with consistent exercise intervention. And this is because the amount of exercise energy expenditure has no correlation with weight loss after a 20 week period because the body is able to adjust and downregulate that activity factor or that caloric burn for self-preservation because it knows it needs the requirement for the basal metabolic rate.
1: Sure. So we can only kind of out-muscle or out-exercise our body for so long then, right? Right. Um, and I always have to have that conversation with people when they share their MyFitnessPal or chronometer, and they're putting in their daily exercise, and it's giving them like a 500-calorie you know, chunk, I'm like, well, maybe 200. Right. You could, you know, guesstimate for, for some form of exercise. Um, but not as, as in and out as it seems. So that kind of takes this whole calories in calories out concept and just, you know, spins it on its head. Um, so let's talk about just the, you know, simplistic approach of, of this concept and where it really falls short.
2: Yeah, so this calories in, calories out came um, into the field in the late 50s. There was a researcher, um, Max. Wish Nofsky, and he outlined the rule that basically created this concept that Live Strong and Mayo Clinic and MyFitnessPal and still many people use today to predict weight loss. And it's this concept that a pound of human fat represents 3,500 calories. So, therefore, cutting 500 calories a day for a week. 500 times 7 would be 3,500, right? That through diet or through physical activity, this is what Dr. Max had suggested, um, would result in a pound of weight loss per week. Or similarly, adding 500 calories a day would result in the weight gain of about the same. And today, we're really seeing with up-to-date metabolic research, and especially what came to light in a more anthropological assessment of looking at humans that we know are dynamically more physically active than others, which makes sense, right? Because like they would die because they have more food scarcity. Right, right, so that's right. how we've evolved to survive. Um, you know the body's always um, concerned about its primary priority of survival um, we know though that this calories in calories out is overly simplistic and um, we know that the body is much more dynamic and adaptable um, in fact there was a study entitled predicting adult weight change in the real world it was a systemic systemic systematic excuse me review and a meta-analysis that accounted for the changes in energy intake or expenditure and basically it looked at when you alter one one component such as restricting the calories consumed throughout the day that this, um, or maybe adding an exercise in, that this would set off a cascade of changes in the body that would affect how many calories you use and in turn your end point of your body weight. Um, But it's not a simplistic equation of add exercise or subtract calories. Yes,
1: and then we have to add on to this complexity, um, you know, food quality, inflammation, metabolism, hormones, insulin. There's all of those conversations within calories in calories out that are just not being had.
2: Yes. And that's where then when we're talking about these multiple um, mechanistic shifts, right? Insulin, I think, is a primary one to think of when we're talking about body fat and when we're talking about fuel storage in the body in general, right? So a diet that is in high refined carbohydrates and going to create a dynamic insulin response insulin is going to store that excess glucose or blood sugar as fat. And fat, as a type of body tissue, is not metabolically active, and so is not going to favorably impact that basal metabolic rate, and will thus not drive or support a weight loss process. Also, body fat drives more insulin resistance and drives more body inflammation, which has other mechanisms that interferes with weight loss.
1: Okay, so now it's probably a good time to talk about why, you know, within calories, macros matter, um, and so it's not just as simplistic as calories in, calories out. We need to look at the breakdown of those macronutrients, being our carbs, protein, and fat, um, and maybe let's get into a little bit about how ketosis in particular is unique for weight loss that can provide sustainable results.
2: Yes. So there's a fabulous recap episode that we did way back in the archives, episode 99. It's called Ketosis as Medicine. And in that episode, we unpack a lot of literature, but I wanted to really, I'll give you an overhaul again of why keto is different, but then I'll really just hit on the muscle sparing effect of ketosis as well as the sustained weight loss results and reduction of cravings that we can see because these are unique mechanisms to nutritional ketosis. So we do know that the calories that you eat are going to impact your weight gain. So that's non-debatable. And we do know that cutting calories is the most effective way of losing weight. And that's also not you know up for debate. That's very clear. But the mechanism of how the weight is lost and if the weight loss result is sustainable, and also other biomarkers for disease risk, like blood sugar, inflammation, and so forth, would be influenced beyond calories by macros. That's kind of the big thing to distinguish. So we've also heard, I can't believe that I can gain weight on keto. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you can. Sure. Um, because if you're eating an excessive amount of calories, you're going to gain weight, period. Yep. So I, I do have to acknowledge that. With that being said, nutritional ketosis is actually a biochemical process that occurs in the body. So it's a unique mechanism that occurs where the body transitions from being an exclusive sugar burner to being a hybrid using both fat in the form of ketones and sugar in the form of glucose as fuel. And when the body tips into using ketones as fuel, the blood sugar levels become very regulated. And so we see less of a demand for insulin, and we tend to see good blood sugar control, so less of the mountain peaks and valleys or dysregulation. We also know through nutritional ketosis that ketone bodies have unique mechanisms of action. You know, the first thing that was acknowledged back in medical literature was the the role of ketones with epilepsy because they actually cross the blood-brain barrier they can actually dock to a component in the brain in the hypothalamus, which can regulate this HPA axis or the fight or flight mechanism in the body, which can harness the stress response. They're also gabernogenic or influence our GABA expression, which has a role of reducing anxiety. And also that's one of the mechanisms that would uh, offset that seizure impulse, that neurological firing in the body. We know that ketones also reduce oxidative stress. So they actually reduce your reactive oxygen species in the brain, which can reduce, in turn, inflammation in the brain. And we see that ketones can enhance neurogenesis. So this is where we look at nutritional ketosis for cognitive function. So beyond mood and reducing anxiety with that GABA, we also know less inflammation in the brain means more balanced brain chemistry and optimal brain function. We know that overall ketosis can reduce inflammation outside of the brain throughout the body. And we know that ketones have uh, unique mechanisms for muscle sparing and supporting body fat burn.
1: Yeah, let's get into that one a little bit. I can't remember if it was this or another study that we posted around the time that that we first like put that podcast out that got us in all kinds of trouble with that calories in, calories out
2: crowd. I think it was. So we highlighted a study, which we'll highlight again, um, which was a randomized controlled trial of 120 overweight hyperlipidemic, so elevated cholesterol panel uh, subjects, and they compared the effects of a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet with a low fat, low cholesterol reduced calorie diet. And um, over 24 weeks, the individuals that consumed the low carbohydrate diet had greater weight loss success. So that was a pretty powerful uh, study over a good period of time, 24 weeks in length, and a good population size of 120 individuals. Um, There were four other clinical trials that compared the effects of low-carb diet with low-fat diet. And time and time again, all of these studies have shown that low-carbohydrate group tends to lose more weight over the three- to six-month period. And also, those that lose weight using a low-carbohydrate or a carbohydrate-controlled diet sustain the weight loss longer than those that just merely calorie restrict.
1: And is that because of the change in in body composition, you think?
2: The muscle sparing mm-hmm. effect, right. Yeah. So so when you make ketones, you also will see an enhancement of HGH, mm-hmm. um, which is human growth hormone. And so when we see an improvement or an influx of HGH, this has muscle sparing effect. And this then is going to play a role with maintaining that basal metabolic rate. So again, outside of the exercise factor, this is actually helping your body burn calories by retaining that muscle mass. Yes. Um, And again, we would see that time and time again in our clinic when we were running like, you know, BIA scans
1: on people on a pretty frequent basis, like we'd have them come in, you know, for their sessions every four to six weeks, or if they were doing our live program at the time, they'd be doing, I think every two weeks, uh, a BIA scan. And you would see that number of pounds of body fat and that percent body fat going down while the muscle was preserved or sometimes even went Gaining. up. Yes, Yeah.
2: Yeah. Very powerful. And we've talked about in the grass fed way podcast, mm-hmm. how, you know, way unique of all of the proteins that are available does play a role independent of exercise. Again, just another argument on diet, making body composition change. Totally, That grass fed way can actually also improve muscle mass. And there's been studies on sarcopenia or muscle wasting and showing that the, um, uh, compounds in the grass fed way, leucine, and then the branch chain amino acids play a huge role in that muscle structure. Yes. And hence
1: the reason in our keto program, we encourage like a daily whey protein shake. If you can make that work, um, or in our 12 week keto meal plan, I think we bring it in at least three to four times a week for yeah. maybe a more realistic approach if you still like to chew. But I think that's a really important component because not only does it Kind of preserve or, or structure the amount of calories that you're putting in right a shake is just a pretty controlled delivery not super like triggering or you know hyper palatable and and you know very easy to make and then you've also got that addition of grass-fed whey in there
2: absolutely um
1: let's talk about the food cravings aspect because i think this is another reason um, that we find keto you know sustainable for weight loss. Uh, So a keto diet we're going to find very satiating due to its high fat content. Um, And when we're doing, you know, a clean um, or real food keto, we're also removing many of the trigger foods for a lot of people.
2: Right. Like, you know, gluten itself is addictive. Um, And we know that it's an obesogenic crop. And so when you remove gluten from the diet, that plays a huge role as an obesogenic triggering addictive type food as well as you mentioned the word hyperpalatable so maybe in a dirty keto You would be consuming still bars and things like that, which might have non-caloric sweeteners. And those can impact, of course, palate and cravings. But we really push a more Mediterranean, whole food, food as medicine approach to nutritional ketosis. And regardless, really, again, this idea that ketones have unique influence on the body has been seen with clinical research in the world of satiety as well. So there was a randomized pilot trial where they looked at a moderate carbohydrate diet compared to a very low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet. And they looked at individuals that were overweight or obese and had type two diabetes or prediabetes. And um, they used the ketogenic diet in the more aggressive term. And at three months, the average A1C level was unchanged from the baseline in the moderate carbohydrate group. So no reduction. Yet it did go down 0.6% in the very low carbohydrate or the keto group. And 0.6 is very relevant because we start to say pre-diabetes at 5.6. Um, and so if you went from 5.9 down to 5.4, that'd be only, you know, yeah. a 0.5 reduction. You would go from a, a deep prediabetic or diabetic at a, a, a 7 um, and moving down or a 6 even and moving down. So 0.6 could be very significant for an A1C actually. They also saw that 44% of the keto group discontinued one or more diabetic medications compared to only 11% in the just moderate carbohydrate group. Um, They saw that 31% discontinued sulfonylurea drugs in the keto group compared to only 5% in the moderate carb group and that the keto group lost 5.5 kilograms on average when compared to 2.6 kilograms on average in the moderate carb. So the study really suggested that this ketogenic diet Um, played a bigger role in glycemic control, um, and also played a big role in decreasing diabetic medications. Um, And now, you know, that didn't really talk about satiety, but it looked at a long-term study as far as outcomes, medication reduction, blood sugar control. But there was another study that looked at a low-fat diet and a low-carbohydrate diet Um, playing a role with decreasing urges for carbohydrates and starches and the um, study of hunger. So this was a two-year study and they found that there was an association of change in food cravings, food preferences, and in appetite ratings, as well as a change in body weight in the individuals that did the low carbohydrate diet compared to those that did the low fat diet. And part of this is the mechanism of GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide. Glucagon-like peptide is an incretin And um, it plays a role in decreasing blood sugar levels. And it has um, a glucose-dependent matter um, by enhancing secretion of insulin. So we've seen, for instance, this is one of my arguments against non-caloric sweeteners, that our taste receptors in our tongue can actually respond to GLP-1. In this study, they looked at three days of a low-carbohydrate, higher-fat diet or a keto diet, and they found that the GLP-1 hormone actually increased in nine healthy men. And so this was signaling to the individuals that there was enough food and that the body was satiated. Um, And we tend to see more expression of the GLP-1 when we're in a state of nutritional ketosis. And so that's one of the mechanisms of satiety. We also know that the fat itself, um, especially when paired with ample protein, can be very satiating and are more self limiting, generally speaking, than carbohydrates, which invite more binging or excessive consumption, especially when we work with food scientists, which are making addictive flavor combinations of salt with sweet with fat, all in one combination. Yes. And then we're talking about your classic like snack foods and such. Yes.
1: And, and beyond just the types of food, you know, keto also helps with this feeding frequency, which I think is a lot of people's issue um, when they're trying to go just calories in, calories out. They're like constantly snacking on these hundred calorie you know, snack packs, and that does not help the situation.
2: Right. When we're frequently feasting, you know, we're creating more insulin activity, mm-hmm. which creates more body fat storage. Um, and we're also really interfering with the clinical outcomes we can see through the idea of intermittent fasting, which is where we'll see the most insulin sensitivity, the deepest amount of nutritional ketosis. And so that's where intermittent fasting and keto are definitely friends, I would say, yep. for sure. Yep. And, and you know, the satiety that you get,
1: Intermittent fasting comes really naturally, I think, when you're doing keto and, and you don't feel the need to muscle it as much. It's like, I don't want breakfast and I don't really need a snack between lunch and dinner, and you end up, you know, on this lovely structure that also is going to support your goals, right?
2: Yes. yes. Um, and, you know, the idea of that is that your blood sugar levels are stabilized, so you're yep. less prone towards low blood sugars. So that's why it's even important to consider in your household for children for trying to avoid hanger and those, you know, toddler freakouts of blood sugar dysregulation and, you know, pairing in, of course, mood and learning and being told no. But when children are fueled with good blood sugar balance and they're getting ample protein and fat in their diet, they tend to have less behavioral disorders and also behavioral outrage or aggression or anger because of that blood sugar stability. And and that's huge. That's why we always had bacon in our diaper bag for Stella. And now it's
1: piggy sticks from the salumeria um, we just had on. Um, All right. So um, let's get back to the exercise component. Um, So now although exercise may not be an effective mode of weight loss per se it can facilitate fat loss and and help us you know preferentially remove body fat while retaining lean mass so that does work in our favor of that you know basal, basal metabolic rate yes. um, that we were talking about
2: Yes, so we don't want you sitting on the couch and just restricting your calories and just doing keto. We definitely still want you moving. There's a lot of benefits to exercise one mechanism in the world of metabolism is that exercise plays a role with emptying glycogen stores. So glycogen is really the storage that we hold in our liver and our muscles and it's glucose or excess carbs um, that basically aren't immediately used and held in the liver for conversion into fat. Um, The process of that is going to be de novo lipogenesis and um, when we look at exercise um, an intensive exercise can actually empty out your glycogen stores. And that um, creates space then to refill glycogen. So, you know, carbs that are locked into the muscle glycogen stores will not contribute towards fat stores. And Instead, they're going to play a role with more of your intensive physical activity or exercise. Um, And we see that if you are depleting your glycogen stores with exercise, that this will play a role with reducing your after meal blood um, sugar regulation, as well as playing a role with reducing body fat storage. Um, so in studies, we've seen individuals that were fed a carb-rich meal following depleting their glycogen. So after exercise, if they repleted maybe with some roasted sweet potato or a smoothie, um, compared to non-exercising control group, the exercisers experienced a three-fold higher postprandial muscle glycogen synthesis. So more dietary sugar became muscle glycogen. And they saw a 40% reduction in hepatic triglyceride synthesis or basically in their liver's production of fat and namely the type of fat, the harmful inflammatory triglycerides. Um, So that's pretty remarkable. So that idea of the exercise kind of wringing out the Mm -hmm. glycogen that helps you get deeper into keto. And then if you were to have carbs, that'd be the right time to do it. And after you've kind of wrung out that glycogen, there's less propendency towards your liver producing excessive triglycerides.
1: Sure. And, and if you're someone who's played with a CGM, you've probably seen the impact of exercise. In fact, that's something we encourage doing um, while you're wearing a CGM is to kind of play with your exercise and see how you know both exercise followed by carbs or exercise after having a meal with some carbohydrate impacts your blood sugar.
2: Yes and then of course exercise directly improves blood sugar control mm-hmm. because it actually brings the glucose into the muscle tissue or and in, into the cells um, so we know that you know independent of insulin getting up and moving your body following carb consumption can actually bring glucose into the tissues and that's a huge uh, mechanism of action of course because less glucose circulating less insulin demand less body fat storage so right there we're seeing another mechanism we know that exercise also can improve sleep and sleep is where we've talked about before. You know, really, where we're most metabolically active. Sleep is where fat loss actually occurs. Um, when you're asleep, you're gonna. When you are asleep, you're gonna experience the biggest spike in your fat mobilizing growth hormone. And if you're not getting quality sleep, we know that cortisol and other stress hormones will interfere with body fat metabolism, can even drive belly fat, and play a role with fat retention or holding body fat. So, you know, the big thing I would say is if you're cutting your sleep for your exercise, Mm -hmm. maybe consider that. Um, So, you know, I don't want you training at 11 p.m. because you can't get it in during the day. That's going to mess with your circadian rhythm. It's going to create that fight-or-flight stress response of your exercise, especially if you're doing it in like a 24-hour gym with bright lights and then you're driving and all that. Um, And also, you know, maybe don't get up at 3 a.m. to fit in an exercise where then that's cutting your sleep to less than six hours a night. Sure. Um, So ideally getting that seven to eight hours of sleep and then fitting in the exercise during your waking hours would be ideal. Yes. Yes.
1: I think that's a really good point. Sleep is where it's at. Yes. Uh, And then exercise also has an impact on our beige fat versus white fat.
2: Yeah, so our brown fat is that metabolically active genre of body fat that basically burns calories to keep us warm in cold temperatures. And that's what creates that thermogenesis. It increases our energy expenditure. And, um, you know, often with body fat and individuals that are overweight, they're going to have less amounts of brown fat. They're going to have more of the harmful inflammatory yellow fat. So, what's neat about exercise in this world is that exercise can actually convert some of that white white. white adipose tissue to behave more like brown adipose tissue, hence the concept of beige fat, if Mm -hmm. you will. Um, And so we actually see a reduction of the size of the fat cells. We see a reduction in the lipid content of the fat cells. And we see that we're able to build more energy-consuming ATP, producing mitochondria within the fat. So with exercise, um, we can actually see turning that sedentary white fat into more more of a beige, more biologically active thermogenic fat that actually produces energy. Okay, super, super cool. Um, and then other
1: benefits of exercise—we know it can um, enhance our, our stress response or reduce stress. So that's a good thing, right?
2: Yeah. So you know, again, connecting back to that cortisol hormone, we're getting into these kind of um, two steps out of the concept of weight loss in this world. But we do know absolutely stress is a huge major risk factor for weight gain because both stress hormones themselves actually can create blood sugar spikes as well as again body fat gain because the body's prioritizing survival and it says I don't know what's happening but we need to hold the weight on this individual Mm -hmm. something's happening they're running from a cheetah or whatever and maybe it's just an early divorce Um, the issue with this is that not only does the stress drive the weight gain but often stress also leads to stress munching or snacking and this is where then we get that insult to injury where the um, kind of vicious cookie cycle where we're eating to gain the weight and the stress hormone is telling the body to gain the fat from the weight And, and here we go on on this vicious train now exercise the beauty here is that it can blunt our stress response so we do know that I mean any of us that have done any form of like a lifting session or um, has done any form of an intensive adrenaline based exercise we know that not only does it make our muscles stronger and our cardiovascular system more efficient but it does work our psyche too and there are endorphins and feel-good neuro compounds which could help us to feel more full if you will more satiated, more nourished during a time of stress versus that external seeking, which then just layers on the snacking and the imbalance. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I I did want to say, you know, when we're looking at like training and we're looking at the timestamp, remember we acknowledge like that three month window of when things kind of level out. And so we've seen this even with like marathon training. I mean, they're burning, again, statistically, a lot Mm -hmm. of calories. They're running X amount of miles. But we've seen um, studies that have looked at like 18 months of hardcore marathon training, men losing just 2.4 kilograms of fat, um, and women losing no fat during marathon training. And so again, they didn't overcompensate necessarily with diet. Their body just got thrifty with that exercise factor and didn't allow it to burn over that 30% threshold, which then reduced over time as they continued to train and do you think that's the type of exercise
1: too that matters there because I think of you know running we're in this kind of fight-or-flight state constantly we're not taking like a lot of breaks when we're doing those long runs so I do wonder if that's like telling the body it's in danger um, that's how I got myself to stop running.
2: <laughs> well, and you were in pretty severe uh, adrenal fatigue. Uh-huh. Yes, um, for sure. I mean, there was there was a study that found that the most effective method for weight loss in severely obese was diet um, as the priority. And that was supported with resistance training. Sure. Um, and this was compared to endurance training plus diet or endurance training um, combined with resistance training and diet. And so, again, it was nothing to do with endurance. It was primarily diet. Um, But then they did see that the resistance training was helpful. And that's because the strength training is going to be like that savings account versus the checking account. You're not just burning the calories during your exercise, you're actually enhancing your lean body mass, which over time impacts your body composition, which over time has more of that sustainable result hitting that basal metabolic rate, which is again, 60 to 80% of your caloric burn versus the actual exercise factor. Got it.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, so kind of on that train of resistance training that we always talk about walking um, would be effective here. Um,
2: yeah. And that would be your cardiovascular mm-hmm. element. Absolutely. But the the lean body mass work is really where we'll see the impact on metabolic health.
1: Got it. Okay. Um, and then um, what about like sprinting and things like that? I know there's some research in, in that department. Um, do we
2: encourage any um, of that kind of? Well, hit, Sprint type or hit. hit in that concept would be supported as well because again, you're kind of mixing up the metabolic stressor to the body and um, especially that's where the concept of like CrossFit mm-hmm. with the like, what is it? The WOD, the, the workout of the day kind of thing. Yeah. Or WOD I don't WOD. know how they say it or whatever. Um, and so that whole concept, you're working kind of strategically through the body. You're mixing up positions of the body, but it's still, you know, a lot of that is going to be strength-based. And the biggest thing I say specific to the individual's Uh, metabolism the individual stress demands and their history of their hormone balance and adrenals kind of weighing out at that juncture whether the HIIT training would be appropriate like for me personally I am not one that does well with HIIT because my body is like ready to go with adrenaline all the time and so I'm much better doing something with rhythm and cadence and doing lean body mass work with like Pilates or moderate weights um, in a really strategic approach that allows consistent safe breath work versus irregularity yes
1: we covered this way back in a podcast on over exercise or maybe it was called are you over exercising um, but I think a lot of that still stands in terms of our philosophy about you know some of the types of, of exercise that you can do
2: most definitely and then the last thing I want to note um, which kind of is a mechanism of course of keto but also supported by exercise is leptin So leptin is a satiety hormone that supports metabolism and it tells the body basically that it's satiated or fed. And we've talked about, there's actually an episode we can share all about leptin. And this is the concept of where I bring in actually carb cycling after long-term nutritional ketosis. We often see as an individual gets fat adapted or starts to make ketones that they get good leptin sensitivity and good leptin signaling. So both leptin and that GLP-1 have various mechanisms on satiety, which can help to prevent cravings and make the diet approach sustainable because you're on track and you're not dealing with Hunger, essentially. Um, but we do know that leptin um, plays a role also with exercise. Um, so there was a study that looked at leptin levels um, and how leptin levels over time would decrease with calorie restriction. Um, and they looked at a diet-only group as well as a diet group and exercisers, and they saw that leptin levels dropped to 62% in the diet-only group, but in the exercisers, the leptin only dropped by about 42%. So again, that higher leptin that retained through exercise would maintain better calorie expenditure and a lower or regulated appetite. So those are two important mechanisms for weight loss results. Yes, and I'll link that
1: whole episode to dig back into on all about leptin and its
2: multiple mechanisms right but again just another reason why if we were just doing calorie restricted we're not going to get that leptin impact that we would from keto and so this particular study looked at calorie restriction and exercise it would be interesting to see if they did one with keto and if keto it dipped or maybe it actually went the other Uh way in that population so that'd be a fun one to do yes all right so Diet or exercise, or both? <laughs> yes. What's the, so, what's the summary? To me, what I'm seeing, and especially again, which comes to the, the brightest awareness and light when we're looking um, at the assessment of the Hadza and the output of the thousands of calories they're burning on foot, hunting, gathering daily compared to Western society where we're very sedentary. If we're looking at a very consistent caloric expenditure, I would say that I'd put all my money on diet. Um and I would use the exercise as a way to honor my body, to stay connected in my body, and to support the function and capability of my body. So thinking it of of more of a fortitude practice to maintain tone and to maintain strength and capacity in the frame, um, but really using diet as I would say 99% of the lever instead of 80% of the lever, that's going to impact what happens in your blood sugar metabolism, what happens with your body fat storage, your lean body mass, and overall your weight loss success well we picked the right job didn't we yes good thing we're not personal trainers okay and much love to all of you personal trainers listening because you know we absolutely of course for cardiovascular health for cancer prevention for all the things things. detoxification we need to move our lymph so don't get lazy on the couch just because you heard today's episode but definitely if you're noticing that you're one of those people that huh I did kind of hit a a standstill. And yes, I am increasing my reps at the gym and my exercise gotten better. But I have noticed that I'm going for that ice cream at bed because I'm feeling justified Mm -hmm, because of mm -hmm. my exercise. Or I have noticed that, you know, maybe I'm not getting in as much mindful food as medicine goals because I've been focusing my time and energy as my exercise. Um, Definitely recalibrate and focus on food as your foundation. Um, That's really the building blocks of who you are, how you function as a human requires nutrients in all of your biochemical pathways. So stick with Food as Medicine as the foundation and we're always happy to support you guys with tools. Again, go on over to alimillerrd.com. That's where you can grab a spot in our 12-week Food as Medicine virtual ketosis program. Again, it's evergreen. It's ongoing. You can watch it as much as you want. I know you're going to get awesome outcomes because we troubleshoot next level, including things like inflammation and hormones, and so much more. So you can use the code KETOFAM50 to save $50 on that program, making it just $99 of an investment. And if you're looking to get a taste of food as medicine in a ketogenic approach, check out our 12-week meal plans using the code KETOFAM10 to save $10.
0: Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast.